for those of you who are following the news this week, you'll get the joke when I say that the primates of the Anglican Communion, the leading bishops of the 38 provinces or churches of our worldwide body, meeting in Canterbury this week, were probably not thinking of me or my sermon this Sunday when they made their decisions this week. For those of you who have not heard, they uh, reached a point of decision this week where they decided to recommend that the Episcopal Church for our decisions last summer to embrace marriage equality for all should be relegated to a secondary position in the meetings of the communion and would no longer have voice and vote on the bodies, at least for a period of time. Uh, Nor, they said, would we be eligible to enter ecumenical relationships with other bodies on behalf of the communion. To put it another way, particularly in light of Martin Luther King, whom we're celebrating this weekend, we were told to go to the back of the bus, which is a different experience for the Episcopal Church. We have been in a position of privilege and to some degree entitlement for quite a while, So you can imagine the reaction on the social media was quite swift. And it broke down on a number of lines, one of which was, of what concern is this to us, like today's gospel? Maybe we don't need the Anglican Communion anymore. Why should we be funding them? For anyone who knows parish ministry at all, we know that routine very well. If I don't like what's going on, I'll withdraw my pledge and go home. Those are the easy and very American responses to being snubbed, formally or informally, by a body who has been wrestling for years with how much juridical authority, if any, it has. You see, the primates were initially brought together not to have authority over the communion, but to engage in prayer together and common relationship and dialogue, what has commonly come to be known as the bonds of affection which bind the communion together. So at one level, you could say the archbishops and presiding bishops of the communion this week were just playing old-fashioned power politics. And as our deacon put it this morning, it's getting rather recursive. We've heard this before many times over the past 20 years, and it's likely we will hear it again. As I reflected several weeks ago, it's starting to get a little bit boring, actually. But nevertheless, it raised some interesting questions for us as a church and as members of a communion that has always been a bit of an experiment over the past century and a half. And one of those experiments, of course, has to do with diversity. And the truth of the matter is, we human beings are not very good at diversity. Just look at Paul's writing today to that community in Corinth. Part of his comment to them is about a diversity of gifts probably in a community that was trying to set up a hierarchy and decide which gifts were really Christian and which were not. We've never done diversity very well. 
diversity of culture, diversity of background, diversity of perspective, and certainly diversity of theology has always been a hard thing for any Christian body to manage. So of what concern is that to us here on the ground this day in Mill Valley? It's a lot like the question that Jesus poses to his mother today's reading from John. What concern is this to us? Does it matter? And should we just take our marbles and go home? Today's beautiful reading from John, this familiar story of the first miracle at Cana, is unusual in the gospel because it does not have all the hallmarks that you would find elsewhere in John. Frequently in John, when Jesus is asked a question, he goes off on a tangent at length, probably for 15 to 20 verses. If you're familiar with the gospel, knows that. He goes into sort of a theological treatise. He does not do that in this passage. So there's something different going on here. And you might say this is an extension or an appendix to the prologue of John's Gospel. It appears very early, and it is a foreshadowing of the overarching theme and trajectory of what John is trying to get at as he tells these stories about Christ and about the early Christian community. All of the critical symbols are there. There are the enormous water jars of the rites of purification, Clearly, I think, in John's context, the symbol of the waters of baptism standing there. There is wine mentioned, clearly an allusion to communion. There is Jesus' mother, who, like other figures in the Gospel of John, is unnamed, which often in John's Gospel is an invitation for us to step into her character in the story. It is as though Jesus' mother is not just speaking as Jesus' mother, but as the voice of the faithful, as the voice of the church, accompanying Christ on this journey. And then, of course, there is that image that goes all the way back to Isaiah and beyond, the image of Jesus as the bridegroom. Or to paraphrase other phrases of Scripture, you could say the bridegroom of bridegroom first bridegroom, first one, and the host of the wedding banquet. Now, John's gospel is never thin in its layers of images. It has many meanings, the further you drill down into it. And there is also a sense of irony in today's reading, where Jesus does not seem to be at the center of attention when it comes to the party of the wedding in Cana. The steward doesn't seem to know he's there. Even the ostensive bridegroom of the wedding itself doesn't seem to be aware he's there. There's a sense in which Jesus is back in the kitchen doing what any good Jewish boy would do, and that's arguing with his mother. And his first reaction to her request is, of what concern is this to you and to me? 
and the only ones who hear the conversation are not the people at the center of the party, but the servants, the least among them, those who seem to be disempowered, to be, if you will, at the back of the bus. The question John is posing to his first Christian audience and to us so many centuries later is this question of how do we get from the waters of baptism, which are the waters of radical change, sometimes painful change and transition, waters of setting down one life for a new life that is unknown, how do we get from that painful and difficult transition to the celebration of the wedding banquet, the feast, if you will, of communion? In the symbolism of our architecture, how do we get from the back of the church to the front? How do we make the journey from the font to the altar? This, perhaps, is the great riddle for our beloved and sometimes benighted Anglican communion. What do we do when the wine runs out? When the celebration is over and we have prelates and groups of people in deep conflict, how do we get from that pain of transition back to the wedding feast. Perhaps we take on Mary's role and simply say to our beloved Savior, we have run out of wine. And then we turn to the servants at the table and instead of falling into power politics and deciding who gets to go home with their marbles and whether or not we should remain at the table, we simply say, do whatever he tells you. Do what Christ is calling us to do. And so perhaps one of the great characters who arose this week in the latest chapter of As the Anglican World Turns was our own presiding bishop. Michael Curry, who as an African-American knows what it is like to be at the back of the bus. And just as important, recognizes the experience of our LGBT brothers and sisters in this church over many generations, knows of their perseverance and their patience as they remained at the table, connected with community, refusing to walk away, even when the formal powers of this church slept them year after year, invention after invention. And the power of that witness to change hearts, to change minds, and ultimately to change the church. So Michael Curry stood up in the midst of his brother primates 
and said, this is a painful decision for us, but we will remain with you, and we will continue to walk with you. And then he quoted to them Galatians. Never put it past Michael Curry to quote scripture. Right? Reminded them that in Christ there is no more division, but all are brought together as one. He put it this way to us in the Episcopal Church. He said, this has been a disappointing time for many. There will be heartache and pain for many, but it's important to remember that we are still part of the Anglican Communion. We are the Episcopal Church, and we are part of the Jesus movement, and that movement goes on, and our work goes on. And the truth is, it may be part of our vocation to help the communion and to help many others to grow in a direction where we can realize and live the love that God has for all of us. We can one day be a church and a communion where all, all of God's children are fully welcomed where this is truly a house of prayer for all people. Maybe it's a part of our vocation to help that to happen. And so we must claim that high calling, claim the high calling of love and faith, love even for those with whom we disagree, and then continue. And that we will do, and we will do it together. How does Christ change water to wine? Maybe it's as simple as remaining part of the celebration, of hanging in there when the times are tough, of being part of communion. And if we do that, we too will arrive again at that point of celebration where the best wine is saved for last, where we all surround the table of our beloved bridegroom together. This has been a sermon podcast from the Episcopal Church of Our Savior, Mill Valley, California. We are a growing, welcoming community for those seeking to deepen their relationship with God and to journey in faith with God's people through the breaking of bread and in service to others in Christ's name. You can reach us by phone at 415-388-1907 or visit us online at OurSaviorMV.org That's O-U-R-S-A-V-I-O-U-R-M-V for Mill Valley dot O-R-G We wish you God's peace, and we hope to greet you in person very soon.